human being mental. Sweet, that's some intro. <laughs> Welcome, Dan. Thank you so much for joining me, Mr. Beat Cleaver. Yes, lovely to be here. Thank you. Very awesome, many. freshly back from Boomtown, looking all tan. Check you out, man. It's awesome. It's awesome. How you doing, buddy? How you doing? I'm doing good. Thank you very much. It's been a really busy season for me. Um, I'm on. I've just come back from Festival Six, so mm. I've been performing my butt off wow. all across UK and Europe at the moment, um, and got like another four or five to go still before wow. autumn i feel so, incredibly yeah. privileged to have you here in the middle of what is an epic <laughs> festival tour i <laughs> really you. do thank you so much for coming in mate. no i feel very privileged to be here too so thank you mm. so you've been out on tour beatboxing doing to give us a give us a rundown of all the festivals you've done because it's quite a list so far isn't it yeah so um i kind of I've been doing festivals for a really long time since I was young and I was really embedded in doing crew work and, and uh, was involved in some stages and things like that. But then, yeah, I've been performing so much over the last few years. So it's been really blessed to, to just dive in, do a performance and then enjoy the festival. So, yeah, it's been crazy. I uh, started this year with Balta Festival, which is a, a bit of a nonsense uh, family unfriendly kind of ravers festival. But okay. I was there doing uh, stream tech and doing a performance um, which whereas I was taking audience participation to make ridiculous songs basically so we were making songs about absolute nonsense we had uh, like the wheels on the bus Gabba techno remix we had like all this <laughs> all this like really silly stuff so like as a start to the season it was like really like right come in with fire and then just explode yeah. onto it yeah um, that sounds pretty epic yeah it was really fun was I kind of really want to listen to that now <laughs> <laughs> there may um, there may be some recordings coming out soon so I'm, I'm going to have to uh, like do my content game during the autumn and winter I think absolutely but um and then went on to do arguably my biggest kind of crowd based one uh, where I play at Isla White Festival mm. and uh, I um, I'm a compare and host for one of our stages and then I had my own solo performance and a performance with my ba with my band and basically, the the audiences there are like uh, like three, four thousand quite often, and so mm -hmm. it is like being on a really big stage, really big sound system, being able to just drop bass notes that shake my guts, nice. which is really, really, really exciting. Um, I have to look at my wrist. I have to look at my wrist first <laughs> I have to, to check remember the order. Um, yeah, and then went to a Noisily Festival and did a, a solo beatbox performance again, which was just uh, that that is a really comprehensive music festival for like alternative electronic art so it was really like interesting inspiration because i wasn't there going into the like silliness or trying to rap it was like right i want to i want to compose some like interesting bass music and and these people are like big worshippers of the dj culture so it was really interesting to be the only vocal performer in that entire festival basically wow. yeah yeah um, that's something and uh and then azora so i went to a seven day uh, psychedelic trance and and variations festival in Hungary, which was just before Boomtown. So that was that was my holiday one. That was like seven days of music that I adore mm. and and being able to uh, jam with people around the lake and and hang out in the sunshine all day. It was like yeah, it was glorious. And then of course Boomtown. For those of you that don't know, it's arguably this, the biggest party in the UK. Mm. It's a crazy crazy festival full of theatre and productions and and like amazing works of effort where they every single corner of the place is just teeming with creativity and so it was really good that sounds wild it was really good i am um, I, I got in basically challenging venues to beyblade 
battles, if you oh, okay. remember Beyblades. I at remember Beyblades. Yeah yeah, 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 I remember Beyblades. So um, we were channeling, channel, challenging uh, venues to Beyblade battles, and then on top of that, beatbox battles and rap battles. <laughs> so it was just like pure nonsense, but it was yeah, it was really really. really sounds really like fun. a lot of fun, mate. Yeah, like yeah, a lot of fun. it's been a lot of fun, and uh, happily landing right here on your couch for mm. this podcast so. yeah yeah I'm, like I said earlier I'm so pleased to have you here like it's um, I feel very pl- privileged that you've found the time to uh, drop in on us in the middle of your hectic schedule oh, thanks for having me man it's, it's awesome. been really exciting seeing your stuff pop up on Instagram as well do you know what I mean just like oh my god I'm not in the slightest bit jealous <laughs> <laughs> You know, as someone who comes from a DJing background, um, I never kind of made it onto the festival circuit or anything like that, but would very mm. much have loved to. But I do love watching people perform. Mm-hmm. You know, I've always loved watching DJs and vocal performers and artists, and I've had a recording studios and all sorts of stuff. So, you know, that for me, going out and watching people perform and being in that hub of creativity is just like, oh, I'm in ecstasy just being in the place like that absolutely know? i feel so much at home with these with these spaces and mm. i think like growing up i you know i started festivaling when i was 14 so it was a real like I've, I've kind of gone through a lot of changes personally as well so my experiences with those spaces have changed like dramatically mm. issue solved <laughs> issue solved new memory reinstalled <laughs> um, <laughs> awesome yeah, work apologies for the uh, audio issues there not quite sure what no. happened if you're listening to this podcast you're probably um, only just about getting decent audio after about the first six minutes so <laughs> we completely <laughs> apologise for that I will do the very best I can in the edit but thanks for being patient with that Dan that's absolutely fine do not worry I mean they would have missed all of the, the biggest notes of wisdom and intelligence I had to oh, <laughs> no I'm joking I'm joking I, I know all the pearls of wisdom we <laughs> dropped in those first what 35 minutes or so <laughs> now nothing we've got nothing left nothing that's it we're drained <laughs> empty done with <laughs> so no. we were right in the middle of talking about um mental health and neurodivergency and beatboxing yes, yes. um okay so i can i can rephrase kind of come back from the beginning of this um so yeah beatboxing was uh was yeah a massive change to my life because it, it was a real catalyst of Mm. behavioral traits that I was displaying from really early on that I didn't really understand didn't really you know was often sort of chastised by teachers and parent and my parents a little bit for those kind of things because it was like um I was very echolalic so I copied sounds around me all the time I copy people's accents or I'd mimic voices from from films try and copy laser gun sounds, all those kind of things to enhance so my play. It's a very ADHD kind of trait yeah, quality to have. Yeah, I think have, so. Right? You know, yeah, it's, yeah. Um, also like, a, you know, around the, the kind of autistic side of things, because, I mean, this this is something I'm looking into at the moment is whether or not um, autism is a, is maybe a potential present uh, thing in, in my my sort of mind space. Mm, mm. But um, but within beatboxing, it was basically like the the primary principle of beatboxing is, is mim- mimicry. It's echolalia. It is basically learning to recreate a sound with your mouth and then and doing it in succession so mm. the way i explain it when i'm teaching it is like it's like you're learning a new language where all the phonics are things that are a little bit different to what you normally use mm. so you're just taking taking certain sounds repeating them and then the muscle memory will kick in and eventually you're doing it without thinking and it's just this level of like being able to push it out there with, of, with, with total ease rather than going oh I, I could never do that it's like literally anyone can do this 
like anyone mm-hmm. if you want to put time into it if you want to engage with it if you be, like are passionate about doing it then you can learn it's really mm. really warming um which kind of yeah again comes back around with the mental health side of things because it was my first form of expression that was inherently mine it was like mm. nobody else was really doing it around me i had two friends when i was in school who were into beatbox and we were like we were symbiotic in that sense because we were just like we would communicate through rhythms and beats and bass noises and Incredible. we didn't need to have banter and all these other elements because we <laughs> had this one thing that we could really share and it was really beautiful um and like fast forward a few years, I so I, I started working in some schools, uh, working in SEN environments, and I was working with largely nonverbal um, autistic young people. Uh, that was my primary specialism. It was, it was kind of those areas, uh, uh, behaviors that challenge and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a lot of uh, a process called intensive interaction that was going on there, which is effectively like sitting with an individual and copying their interactions to the world so it's like following their echolalias following their sounds that they were making follow their actions all these things and obviously something that i find really really natural and really really good Mm, mm. and then we got into exploring the idea of workshopping it with beatboxing so it was like implementing speech and language therapy into it so it was like okay phonic memory using muscle memory to to enhance speech is a beatbox strategy as well so we're going and all these kind of practices which were used therapeutically with these young people i was like oh i'm learning that this is a beatboxing like enhancement as well so i started implementing that in my teaching and um and it just kind of it became a real moment of like watching these young people and the way they interacted with the world and how they would communicate so much with nonverbal communication and that they would, you know, like beat a chest and, and make a specific noise. And you know, as a person working with them, that their intent was like, they really need a drink right now. They need to break. They need to move and all these things. I was like, no, this part of nonverbal communication is, is amazing. Mm. And we have a, an ability with the human voice and the body to do that. So why not integrate that as as like you know because primarily that's that's so much what beatboxing was to me it was I can show how much I love these mu- these sounds and this this form of music with with my body without ever having to explain it I can just be like oh you know that you know the drum rhythm that's like and it was like yeah yeah right cool and that that moment was a real like oh this is not just a hobby silly thing that I'm picking up this is a communicational tactic this is a mm. an expression this is an art form this is so much more like deep to it and uh, I started um, doing a, a little bit of a project where I made a uh, request for funding to implement some beatbox workshops in some challenging areas of education so there was lots of like HCP based educational pl- pl- placements where uh, a lot of the time they were verbal or they, uh, they were kind of, you know, they just had a lot of like issue growing mm. up or they had a lot of childhood trauma and stuff. And so we, uh, we got the funding based on the idea that we could implement uh, freedom of expression using beatbox, but then also moving on through just improvising or, or making music and all these ways. So we had all these kids working together on like one of them would beatbox for the other and the other one would like rap a story that they were like oh, going cool. through. So it was like these like... My my friend does it, holds a space called Room to Rant, and it was a part of an idea practice of integrating rap music into mental health because it was like, you know, these kids have got stories, and 
rap is a beautiful art form to, to deliver that. But then it was like, on top of that, we can facilitate them without a lot of experience and technology by real simple beatbox implementation as well. And there was expression to that because you see these kids really like nicking and they were just like in the zone where they were just like getting into like deep ideas for beats and things mm -hmm. like that. And mm -hmm. you can see this like nonverbal communication coming through with them where they were like hearing their friend and they were like, oh, we're really tuned into this. We're really like going like into some beautiful art, some beautiful kind of music. And we get some for some of those kids as well that you know they wouldn't be able to communicate normally and typically you yeah know, if you like no no difficulty with speech difficulty with expression movement as well so yeah, a totally. lot of them would be you know physically restrained yeah so to have that way of kind of communicating is wow it must have been mind-blowing for some of those guys right it was i we had beautiful feedback basically mm. it was really heartwarming and it was i had a really good chance to connect with some of these guys because I was working alongside them as a like a, as a teaching support for for a little while when I moved to Bristol, um, and then I was able to take this this grant practice and implement it there, mm. and so they were already ready to engage, and they were already at a point where they were interested in the thing. But they, again, like most people do, like most adults, it doesn't. It, this is not a neurodivergent thing. This is not a a young person thing. But have a system of voice in their mind that tells them they cannot do a thing when it is very much in their capabilities. And that's something I'm really, really passionate about is like, uh, I, I have a bit of a spiel with this, which is your voice is the loudest in your universe and you listen to it more than anything else. So when you put yourself down, you tell yourself you're, you're shit or you're rubbish or you're, you're foolish or that you can't do a thing, then you're not gonna be able to, to progress into those things. So a lot right. of the work that I was doing was not, here's how you beatbox, it was, fully just giving them the space to be confident and then praise each other which was a huge step because mm. they were giving so much love and so much like unity to each other in those moments of being like yeah that was really sick man that was really really cool like oh yeah i loved how you did this and i was just like sat back like, it was, like i actually didn't really have to do anything this is just something that i do naturally and i really enjoy doing it it's just being like a cheerleader for people that i love or people that i'm passionate for and being like what you're doing is amazing it's really cool keep going and there was a, a certain like, um, I don't want to say like infallibility, but like a very changed thing to any other musical teaching structure I'd ever witnessed or seen, mm. where there was a lot of like in classical music tuition, there's right and wrong. There's, there's basically it. There's, it is very binary. It is like, you will learn this. If you get one note wrong, then you have ruined that song or broken that song. So for- You have to replicate it exactly as the person who wrote it yeah you know, totally in in the same tempo timbre same tempo, all these things and yeah. um, dare change an instrument yeah so right exactly and no out of place exactly right yeah, which is yeah. really constricting and that's that was my experience in education mm. with music it was really like encaged it was very much like there's only this this is the only way we're going to do it we're not going to give you freedom um and so what i obviously seen a lot of with with myself as well mm. but also young neurodivergent people was the rsd the rejection sensitive dysphoria would be a really huge thing in those mm. practices because you know the soon as you've gone you've played 40 notes similar beautifully and then you screwed up once and you're chastised for it you don't want to pick up that guitar again or yeah. for in some cases you want to smash the guitar and then never look at it again and it's like it's really it was really sad to me that it was like, I wish that I'd been introduced into music tuition in a way that was free, in a way that was like, 
I'm not going to tell you how to do this. This is your expressional tool. I can, if you ask me, oh, how do you do this? Like we can work on that and that's great. And that's how I've done with, with beatboxing. And I think a really prime example um, of, of the implementation of this, which is like, I've, I've quite often called it like my most proud thing I've ever done with my life, mm. which is I was, I've been working with this young boy for uh, almost three years now. And he was, um, he wasn't nonverbal, but he chose to disengage basically with all the, all things with his family, with his, mm. with friends. And he was homeschooled and he was young, young lad. And I just like had a real resonance with sat chilling with him and working on this stuff. And we were basically working together through lockdown, like on zoom calls. And he was just really passionate about beatboxing. And that was his, that was the thing. He found it on YouTube and thought it was really cool. And then his mom was like, I just desperately want to find a teacher. <laughs> and he taught me like so much because he was unbelievable at just being able to get a sound within moments. And just mm. like, he would understand the process of learning like so rapidly. Mm. And the biggest thing ever was self-confidence, self-praise giving himself the allowance to, to even express himself without mm. feeling like he had to just go, okay, I'm back yeah, in this. Yeah. And like his mum sent me these messages that basically made me cry loads, but like that he's engaging them conversation all the time and that he's really confident in talking with others. And he beatboxed at two festivals this year, like in front wow. of loads of people. And this is a boy that didn't engage with anybody and didn't want to That's do things. Bloody amazing. So it was incredible. And that, and that, again, like I said, it was like, I didn't teach him how to beatbox. He he taught himself how to beatbox, but I all I taught him really was that, like giving yourself that love and, and that praise in the moment and being and bigging each other up was a huge thing. Because mm. we do like a feedback thing at the end of every session and he's invited to praise me. And, and it's that element of like giving, giving like props, which I just think is remarkable. So long winded answer, obviously, but in terms of beatboxing and mental health thing, that for me was like the, the biggest eye opener in the mm. journey was just was like, okay, this is not a hobby and it's not just an art form. Like this is, this is like an empowerment as well. This is a, a way to, to channel myself in a way that I didn't ever get when I was little. Mm. So, yeah. It's kind of therapeutic, right? Yeah, massively, you know? massively. Mm. I mean, mm. like, in a, in a very literal sense, I mean, mm. like, obviously, you know a lot within these practices, but, like, um, even in, like, a form of catharsis, just in a, a, a level of, like, blowing through energy, mm. uh, full body movement, you use a diaphragm a lot, so a lot of beatboxing is intensive breathing, mm. so a lot of it, uh, you're doing forms of activated breathing, like kind of Wim Hof techniques mm -hmm. in your ability to learn how to like keep stamina and stuff. And all of those things, you know, have been talked about by spiritualists and, and practitioners for years. Like, you know, breath work is amazing and yeah. being able to move your body and, and have, have energetic release and stuff like these are all huge things. So again, like within that, there's so much therapeutic practice to that mm, for yeah. sure. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And that, you know, embodiment therapy is a real hot topic at the moment. Yeah. You know, people, people coming into a sense of their body. And I think so many people, I include myself in this for a large part, of, earlier part of my life, we're living up here. Ooh. Just completely living up here. 
here, not 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 even aware of the connection here. And, and now I don't think of it as a connection. I think of the, it just being one, mm. mind and body together. There is no mind body connection. They just exist, coexist together. Mm. You know, it's it's not even like they're two separate things and they're connected. They just one can't happen without the other. You know, it's yeah, that's beautiful. They are the same. Yeah, the so self. I think yeah, yeah, the self. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So I think exactly the same as you that that window of creativity into offering something therapeutic is is so beautiful and so powerful mm. and i'm really pleased that you've been able to sort of do that with um with special needs kids essentially at the end of the day kids who have no way of really communicating or exploring you know in a typical way that, that not ordinary people would you know mm. You know, Excellent. and for, for neurodivergency as well, I mean, how many of those kids are, are neurodivergent as, as well as having special educational needs and, you know, I, I mean, all that yeah. kind of stuff? It's all a Usually big melting pot of mental health, isn't it? You yeah, know? massively. The whole thing is, yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I talk, I talk quite a lot about this around the, the kind of blurring of those lines mm. often because, you know, mm. some people have quite a dissection of, of needing to know. They're like, so are they this or are they this or... What, so in mental health and divergency, they're different things, and it's like, no, no, this is all this is all lived experience, and all of these things are are perceptions layered over what we see in behaviours. Yeah, I think our society is a society that needs labels. Yeah, you know, totally. it needs labels, and and my argument with diagnosis, and this is why I've never wanted to train to be um, a psychiatrist or you know mm -hmm. psychotherapist. I I could, but I you know never really fancied it to be honest with you because I don't want to diagnose people. I'm not yeah. interested in fucking diagnosing people. I want to totally. work with people. I want to I want to help people to become the best version of themselves they can be. I'm not interested in giving someone a bit of paper with a bit of writing on that says they have a condition. Mm. And if somebody comes into me for therapy with a condition, the first thing I go is, "Oh, that's nice." and mentally throw it in the bin. I'm mentally, I'm not interested. You know, I respect the fact that you've been and had you know, a diagnosis done and it matters. I, I haven't. I haven't either, but oh, no, I, I, I can quite honestly yeah, say, yeah. you know, I've, I'm, I'm pretty much 100% certain that I have ADHD. I don't need a diagnosis to tell me that. Yeah. I can work it out myself from working out the symptoms. Yeah. And I've talked to other friends of mine and professionals as well, and they're like, glad you're on that track we've been wondering for a while thanks for that <laughs> you know is when people go oh yeah that makes sense now it's exactly what I did I went oh yeah that makes sense now mm. yeah I think uh, what was I talking about yeah. <laughs> see there we go oh god <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for one of those <laughs> it's like the QI buzzer that one what was I talking about damn it yeah it is like the QI buzzer isn't it um, yeah mental health and creativity it's uh, specifically with divergency as well. Yeah, when you're a divergency. Yeah, and, and I think um, having a label, that was where I was at. Thanks. I knew I'd get back there. <laughs> Eventually. <laughs> I was talking about it again, Dan. <laughs> Squirrel. <laughs> where? <laughs> <laughs> I think having a label is useful to a point, okay? It, it, can, it can give you... Um, uh, like a, it made se makes sense of things for you. Like when mm. I found out ADHD, yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. That is me. That's about as much use as a label is, in my opinion. Beyond that, it should never be something to hang your hat on. Yeah, I'm with you. you. Know? And if somebody comes into me for therapy and they go, oh, I've got ADHD, I go, that's great. Who are you? Mm. I really want to know who you are. How do you experience ADHD? Well, how does that affect your life? 
How has that affected your mental health? How has that affected your relationships with people? Blah, blah, you know, I want to know who you are and what you've got. I'm Absolutely. not interested in the in the because everybody's experience of it is different. Mm-hmm. You know, we can all associate with some similar symptoms, like the one we just had. Then, what was I talking about? Mm-hmm. You know, we, we all have that, and we all have the like hyperfocus, and you know, there's so many common things that other people with ADHD have got that I've spoken to. And we all see, you know, we can all pin ourselves onto these things, but are they any use beyond that? Mm. You know, because what it's really about is the individual. How do you cope with life having this? How do you manage yourself having this? How do you cope with your brain? You know, yeah. all the rest of it. That's what's really important. And for me, that's where the therapeutic work is. Therapeutic work is not on a bit of paper with, the, you know, a, a diagnosis written on it. It doesn't mm. matter, you know. Totally. Well, you, you actually nailed uh, two points in that that I, I believe in really, really strongly because... I had a I had a period of time in my life where I was I was really thinking that um the accessory of of the label in your life mm. is like a really important part to be like oh I'm this therefore you know you get me now right yeah. all these areas to it and obviously like exactly like you say it's it's not only the diagnosis of the the professional going through the process with you mm. but it's the perception of uh, other people around you and how they they understand mm. any of these terms mm. but the main thing principle for me which was um why like the idea of labeling or the idea of these things are important it was like twofold which was identity and coping mechanisms because mm. a massive thing that i think is beautiful about it adhd community are an incredible example of this i follow mm. loads of groups and forums and stuff online with this of finally feeling like they're seen and understood yeah. and they're not masking themselves because they're like this is just fundamentally who i am and that that rid itself then from being like oh my adhd makes me do this to being i am like this this is me this mm. is myself this is my mind this mm. is not oh i'm a human being but i've got this like stab wound which constantly makes me hyper focus and jittery and and hyperactive like it's not it's not and and a big one that I've been going into a lot, and I'd really love to hear your insight around this, which was, mm. uh, which was quite severely around the plasticity of the the question with divergency, which was, lots of people term it as being a diagnosis of this is like, usually you get it when you're young, or maybe it's too like you get it a lot later on, but a big thing that I've felt for myself is that so many traits have changed or ad- adapted or I've noticed traits in other people as a result of trauma, as mm. a result of uh, mm. substances, as a result of mm. head injuries and things like that. So like those areas where you're like, oh, you know, you're, you're only, you're autistic always. Like, you know, you're, you have, you display these traits from birth. So if you're not, if you didn't do that when you were a kid, you're, you're clearly not. And it's like, no, that's kind of a bit broken in a sense because well, that's the distinction of neurodivergency and, and mental health. Mm. in a sense because mm. we go you experience depression you didn't always like but you're no. currently you're experiencing the symptoms of depression that is something that is induced from a tragedy or, mm. or maybe uh, just stress and 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 it's not just stress stress is big big things but um and and i i personally which i, I know is something that you you wanted to get into with me a little have been displaying more traits that would be arguably neurodivergent as mm. an adult than I did as a kid. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that has come down through trauma and and, and having really challenging circumstances as, mm. as a growing into an adult. Um, 
and so yeah I over the last two and a half years I've developed tics mm. and I yeah I I had these echolalic behaviours I had these kind of yeah the beatboxer side of things so most people just go oh mate I just thought you were beatboxing and it was like they're not dissimilar <laughs> <laughs> there's just an involuntary process that comes in within that and mm. I remember talking to yourselves when we met for the first time in, in the cafe right. around yeah, yeah. Uh, particularly a motor tick for me, which was this. And like, I've been hit and hurt a lot, mm. particularly in a job that I was doing. So I was like, it was ingrained to me that I was dodging, getting mm. punched in the face and things like that. Mm. And it's become something that comes with stimulus a lot. And it's like clicking, clicking my fingers then and other elements to it. And so lots of people kind of have this talk around. It's like, oh yeah, what have you always had ticks? Is that how you got into beatboxing? I was like, nah. I'm wondering if it's almost the other way around. It's mm. like as a as a person with the mindset that I do and and the kind of brain activity that I do, that after uh, having issues with substances and having issues with quite severe mental health uh, and then traumatic experiences within the workplaces and things like that, this mm. has culminated into a, mm. a a new behavior. And again, it's like I've had conversations where it's been quite damning because they've just kind of gone. Oh well, no, like that can't that can't be right because you know people with Tourette's always have Tourette's and all these elements to it. I'm like, I don't know if that's true, you know. No, I'm not sure it is true. I think um, I think things can definitely develop, and and I think you're you're on the right track with um, trauma being a, a big protagonist to that. You know, it's, it's something that really does affect people who are neurodivergent differently. Yeah, you know, I really do I, because I don't think you can process things in the same way. Mm. Um, I also think that you know if, if you if you're neurodivergent if you're on the neurodivergent spectrum somewhere, you are automatically more sensitive than your average bear. Mm. You know, automatically more sensitive. And um, I had a, a fascinating podcast guest on. It was actually a really good friend of mine as well, Sumani, who's a neurodivergent and gifted specialist, mm -hmm. and she works with with people. Um, basically helping them to come to terms with and deal with what they've got going on neurodivergently or whatever. And she was telling me that there is there's probably like that much difference between like neurodivergence and giftedness. And mm. that a lot of people who are neurodivergent are gifted in some way and it, mm -hmm. there's a lot of overlap there. And the whole thing, that whole thing comes under that umbrella of sensitivity for me. Yeah. So if if you, you know, if you kind of had ADHD as a child, I think it stands to rights that you know if you experience more trauma and you've not that hasn't been caught early the ADHD and you haven't learned to manage it early, you kind of grow up with these coping mechanisms that that are a bit skew whiff, you know maybe not great. Um, mm. You mentioned substance abuse that's an easy one for a lot of people with ADHD to fall into. Yeah, alcohol, drugs, you know any any of it the, the yep. whole lot is is just incredibly easy for people to fall into because that's somewhere where you can find a sense of relief. Mm. You know, certainly something I made a mistake of doing in my twenties as well was going to substance abuse, mm. um, and I think that's that's something that anybody who's sensitive is very prone to. You know, if you fall under so. that sensitive umbrella of being either gifted and not feeling like you fit in, neurodivergent, not really feeling like you fit in, no, you're a bit different to everybody else, but not quite sure why. Mm. That was certainly how I felt when I was growing up. It's like I'm a bit different. And I don't really know why. Mm. You know, to start with, it's like why does nobody else think like me? <laughs> I'm like, come on, what's going on? You know, and then then thinking, well, you know, maybe there's something wrong with me, wrong mm -hmm. with me. And then, yeah, I, I think I've been quite, um, quite lucky in terms of actually 
just naturally managing my ADHD without having to really think about it too much. Mine's not particularly severe, mm. um, but it's definitely there and it's definitely played a factor in a lot of my life. Um, mm. I think in your case, actually, yeah, probably having experienced some trauma in adult life as well since um, having undiagnosed ADHD and then having uh, some traumatic experiences definitely compound all of that. And I'm 90% sure that that's probably got something to do with having developed tics and having developed yeah. something because it's it's essentially coping mechanisms. I you know, so, essentially yeah. coping strategies that we all develop, you know. Totally. And, and you have to. It, it's like you when we had the audio problem just now and, you know, I was fixing stuff out and you were like, excuse me while I make some noises because I don't like the silence. <laughs> and I was like, I know exactly what you mean, mate. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. Totally you know, coping. You, you can't, it's the coping mechanism. It's like, I don't like silence. I'm, I'm going to make some noise. Cool. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know? Totally right. I think there's there's a lot of that in so like what I'm noticing and analyzing a lot with the the tech side of things is it's it's stimulus is the main key because I could sit on my own for days and and, and not once have that mm. so it's massively when energetically I'm around a lot of people I'm feeling manic mm. my like hyperactivity goes up and things mm. like that and it's like little tiny misfires and they're never problematic for me they're never I've never felt shame around it no, kind good, of thing it's good. really like just like whatever, cool. If this is a new part of me, that's cool. I'm going to embrace it. There's no, there's no harm mm. in like, you know, trying to push back. Um, but there's something that you that you said earlier that I really, really liked and I really enjoy because um, you said about the the similarities of being gifted and yeah. and divergent. And um, I got into a real nice reframe again. It's the similar to the your voice is the loudest thing mm. um, of looking at capability as opposed to disability when applying yeah. yourself to the mind. And so my, uh, one of the things that I got into that I really, really liked, and again, this is nerdy, which is going to go awesome. down well. bring it up. Um, <laughs> which is uh, the skill tree of life. Oh, so it was yeah. like uh, in an RPG game format, for example, you have all these traits. Uh, you have strength and agility and knowledge and wisdom and charisma and things like that and you you know you assign your points or whatever and and then those points will segue into all these different areas and like the way I was trying to frame it I ended up getting into a real big focus with my friend as a conversation it was really fun but it just came spontaneously came to me sat down with a piece of paper and just drew it out um, so if we imagine like so many of our personality traits as being the baseline and mm. the nur the nature, mm. as it were, mm. and everything else can be nurture, mm. but everything within nurture can be affected by hardship or change. Mm. So it's like all the sort of individuals where you're like, we, we look at um, a very direct example for me is we look at uh, like the autistic spectrum Mm. in a lot of ways based on ability because we're like if a person is non-verbal we deem them unable mm. or lower capacity lower capability because they can't communicate verbally mm. however their abilities in other areas are like could be mind-blowing could be incredible their retention ability to to physically interact or memorize an environment or anything mm -hmm. like that um and to me like that was a, a good example of kind of going okay right where we find diminish in our tree of life we we will see growth elsewhere and we have to always remember this because we go so often and go oh, i wish i'd done this all oh, my yeah. life yeah it's, it's like because you channeled it all into these things and like it might be as simplistic as like you have a structure of routine that's really really good for you you have a job that you're happy with and you've been able to afford all the things you wanted to do 
you can then like and you're like okay yeah I'm not a performing artist but you've got like all these other wonderful beautiful things that have comprised to make you and like for me that was a real huge thing of like okay where do I channel my idea of what was hard and what I found so difficult in in having a, a divergent type of brain into positivity and it's like my brain is specifically nurtured towards doing exactly what I'm doing now so I'm really grateful to mm. myself and to like practitioners and seeing that stuff happen around me where I'm like in a mainstream education system you have 30 kids and we go we're gonna go here's one voice and if you can't engage with that or if you can't hear the work or you can't do the work then you're gonna go below the line or above the line that's that's the baseline that's how we work in an SEN school it's person-centered for the most part not all of them but it's person-centered so we go this individual has a communication passport of they struggle with this they really like this they're really good with this so we're going to engage them specifically like that mm. they might be the same subject but mm. everyone in that room will learn differently you'll be like, working with the individual right yeah you know and that's the genius part of it and i think like that's a beautiful philosophy in life of mm. being able to be like we have been structured into a baseline of of ability or a baseline of achievement for ever where it's like you know go to school, do well, go to university, do well, get a high paying job. And those forms of successes, those forms of things are like set out. And if you're not achieving them, so many people, so many people I know that go, like I'm, I'm going into my thirties next year. And so many more people are hitting this threshold point around this age time mm. and forties where they're going, what have I done with my life? What are like, why, why don't I do this? Why and I'm, and I'm a big advocate for being like, you got all the time, mate. You could do it now, like mm. you could start mm. now, like and mm. and there's so much wealth of time to put into nurture when people say, "Oh, I wish I'd done art in school," and it's mm. like, but there's really incredibly um, time swaying artists that started in their fifties. It's like, why not? Like, there's literally no reason why not. Like, mm. you can engage with all these things. It's, mm. Mm. So it's a yeah capability yeah, rather than is. disability thing. Yeah, no, I like that a lot. I like that a lot. I, I think. Uh, I think life would be a lot easier for everybody if they realised capability rather than seeing things as disability, you know? Yeah. Think of it as a gift in some ways because, you know, you've you've got the ability to do things that other people can't. I've got the ability to do things that other people can't, you know? Mm -hmm. And hell, man, I was like, I was 36 when I retrained, 10 years ago when I started retraining as a counsellor. Yeah, right. You know, I was 36. And it's like, I could go, you know, I've got friends who've gone to retrain now, you know, in different things. It's never too late. Yeah. It's never too late to go and do what you want to do. Go and follow what you love. Follow your heart. Follow yeah, your calling. Exactly. You know, I can't get that across to people enough. I really can't. I think, yeah, it's important. I feel it. It's important. Yeah, you touched on something just now as well, which I want to come back to, and that's the idea of shame in neurodivergency, mm -hmm. because I think that's a really big one. That's a really, really big one, because how many people are ashamed to have ADHD or, you know, autism or, you know, mm -hmm. anything else that falls under the uh, neurodivergent umbrella because my ADHD brain can't remember any other labels to spit <laughs> out right now. So I'm just going to talk about the neurodivergent umbrella instead. It's much easier. I like it. <laughs> but, you know, how much shame is there around that and how much shame is there in around a, a, a diagnosis for a lot of people, particularly older people who haven't grown up in this culture of mental health awareness, mm. you know, and, and there's still a lot of people now. I mean talking before you know I, I part of my life a large part of my life 28 years of it has been driving trucks yeah you yeah, know yeah. and you can imagine what some of the attitudes are like in the lorry driving community of like well 
Well, it's like we're mental health. We're yeah, like right. Mental, just don't get understand, on with it. Don't understand this mental health stuff. <laughs> I've always just manned up. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Totally. The, the, what's the problem with mental health, son? You know. <laughs> I said to one guy the other day, "Have you ever, have you ever suffered with anger? Have you ever got angry at anybody?" He said, "Yeah, of course I have." I said, "Have you ever got angry at anybody when he didn't mean to?" And he went. Well, yeah, of course I have. I went, well, then you've had issues with your mental health, mate, haven't you? And he looked at me like, huh? Uh. It's that simple. It's, it's yeah. about your emotional state. It's about, it's about how you feel. It's about how you are in your mind. Is your mind healthy or not? Do you exercise your mind? Mm. Do you dare to think? You know, do you dare to stretch your mind a little bit? You know, mm-hmm. do, you, do you dare to step outside of that box that you, we all keep ourselves in so easily? Totally. You know, and it, it, exercise your mind. Think, you know, it's it's important. You exercise your body. You go to the gym for your body. Go to the gym for your mind, mm. you know. It's a mental hygiene. Mental kind of thing, hygiene. Yeah. That's a beauty of a phrase. I'm stealing that one, Dan. I'm stealing that one, <laughs> You You can. It's free claim. I think I Thank stole you. it from somewhere or echoed it. But I, I love it. I love it. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm pinching that for sure. Yeah, it's mental a, it's hygiene. That's a great one. But yeah. Um, so yeah, in in regards to your 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 statement slash question around the shame thing, I'm quite a big believer, and I think actually me and you might have connected on this, but uh, I really like the book that it didn't start with you, or it's like uh, there's an uh, another another book similarly of like body keeping the score, which is specifically yes, much more around score. trauma, <clears throat> but it didn't start with you is a very similar practice where, yeah. but a lot of that um, involves shame, so it's like, the shame in neurodivergency is like not just handed for yourself about the shame of being that identity but it's it's like parental shame and societal shame and stigma because like a massive one was uh parents not wanting to get diagnosis for their kids because they were ashamed that's a huge one like i didn't realize that until adulthood where it really kicked off for me to be like was there a degree of that going on like I understand, like, me, I, I have a beautiful connection with my parents and my family. We're really open and really honest about these things. And I think there's a lot of them kind of going into, um, in as an adult, where they've been like, oh, did we do the right thing? Like, do you feel like, you know, you would have benefited better? And I was like, I'm a very big believer in, like, this is the way. Like, I don't really have much of the, like, what if, what if, what if, what if? Like, that, that got trained out of me with grief, I think. I got really into my mindset of, like, no 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 it's cool like this is where i'm at through hardship through any obstacle like this is this is the reason that i'm doing it um and it was a really eye-opening and beautiful thing because it's like i see i see members of my family as being neurodivergent all the time because i see those traits and behaviors mm-hmm. and none of them have explored that none of them like diagnosed with that it wasn't a popularized opinion it wasn't a thing no. and obviously going to my grandparents there was still institutionalization there was still mm-hmm. um areas where it's like well if you acted up on these behaviors then you would be incarcerated rather than supported or helped or, or mm. in any way shape or form or understood so, even so it, yeah. well yeah oh, <laughs> let her go be seen like that's the thing yeah and to just then go like Whoa, okay we just get on with it we just do our thing like you know mm. we're good or we're bad or whatever that's the ethical moral like level that we're going to get to and so i think that presided like still within it where it's like adhd community i think from what I see, it has experiences just the craziest amount of societal shaming in a sense mm. of so much of the complications and the challenges that come with being a person with ADHD is in how they can't do what other people can do. Mm. And that's a huge thing because mm. it's like, why can't I just focus on a task? 
why can't I just do this email when I actually have to do it? Why can't I like do a nice prepared work and have a schedule and all these things and have it like work all smoothly? And it's like, it's like, okay. Like, um, our, I mean, mutual friend Dave said yeah. the line, you don't guilt yourself into greatness. That's a great which line. Which always hits me because yeah. I was just like, well, shame is guilt in, in a self-perpetuated way massively. It's like shame is to like go, oh, I shouldn't do this. It's mm. bad. It's, all it's fear not based, okay. Isn't it? So much all fear, fear based. based. Yeah, yeah, all of it. And so much of the, the closer to irrational decision making or decision making which could be destructive is so much fear based mm. or avoidance based as well. Mm. Like, mm. shame is the sort of thing that gets people into in substances like so often as well because most of the time, like when you finally enter a world where you f feel fully seen and, and understood and respected for who you are, mm. that stuff can really melt away. Mm. And mm. like the two manners of that is like finding community and then and escapism, like being yeah. an ADHD person who then discovers that fr new friends of theirs are like, oh my God, we are so similar. We are like mm. bing, 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 and all these kind of things. Like it's really grounding. Because I got really into, I mean, I can't remember if we went into this, but you've seen my content online and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I branded my my sort of creative alias as, as an alien. So mm -hmm. my live streams are based around being an alien in a spaceship. And I remember being asked once, like, was a, why, why an alien? I was like, well, the word alien means misunderstood or, mm -hmm. or the unknown. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's how I always felt mm -hmm. was just like that. And so many of my friends agree with that and they feel really, really strongly like that. But there's an interesting unity to that because in sci-fi we go, oh, aliens are all super-powered, super-technology, wasp dancing around the camera. No, yeah. <laughs> um, like superpowers, psychic, you know, all these wonderful, crazy, beautiful abilities. And I was like, well, the, the self-belief, the being like, that I am the alien, like, you know, this is my spaceship. Then I was like, I'm giving myself all the superpowers of my imagination, which... Had to drop this note on. Um, I got told once when I was like, I my primary school had a lot of like, oh, if you can't stop fidgeting, sit on your hands. Mm. If you can't stop talking, we'll move you. All that mm. kind of mm. attitude. Um, and I remember distinctly in year six being told by a teacher that you will not be successful using just your imagination. Mm. So I made my spaceship call. I called my spaceship the imagination because awesome. now it's like my full time job. That's awesome. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Two fingers up to the teacher yeah. right here. <laughs> exactly. I just, people are that, I just want to go, do you know what? Fuck you for not believing in me. <laughs> yeah, do you know right. what I mean? Fuck you and the horse right. you rode in on, man. Like, like, honestly, what is wrong with people like that? Like, I, I tell a story now. I, I, I don't very often talk too much about my own personal stuff, but um, this one's relevant. Okay. So, when I was in primary school, um, I, I was taken out of primary school because I was basically inattentive. And my mum would tell the story that, you know, um, if Richard wrote the, the name and the date at the top of the page, you'd had a hard day, you know, because I would be up around the classroom chatting to this person, chatting mm. to that person. I was more fascinated by people. The teacher was boring. You know what I mean? It was all that kind of stuff. And, and I essentially, I got, I got taken out and put into private school for the last three years of my education. And that kind of nailed me down, made me kind of, I had more attention because I've been in a smaller mm. class. So I felt more comfortable and yeah. I, and I learned and I, I actually did all right, you know? Um, so, you know, it's kind of a double edged sword of that happening, but I think to myself, like, 
why was that not picked up on when I was a kid? Mm-hmm. That teacher who I found distinctly boring was constantly, get to the headmaster's office, you're a disruption, right? I was forever being disciplined for being an asshole in class. <laughs> and nobody stopped to think, like, is it because he's not engaged? Is, is it because he's not stimulated? Is, is that what it is? Mm-hmm. Because that's what you'd think now if you had a child displaying those kind of behaviours that I was playing. And I was bored to the point where I would be banging my head off the desk. Yeah. You know? I remember being pulled out and sent to the headmaster's office and being banging my head on Why are you banging your head on the desk? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Go and stand in the corner and, you know, basically made to sit outside the classroom and work on my own. It's the worst thing you could do. Yeah. You know? And you wouldn't do that to a child now. You'd be thinking, hang on a minute. Maybe there's something not quite right with with that child's brain. Maybe we need to have a look at that, mm. you know. And if that had been picked up on, then maybe my school and life had been different. As it turns out, I didn't do too badly. Do you know what I mean? At the end nice. of the day, but it is just very much like, hmm. If if we'd known now what we back then, what we know now, and applied that then, life could have been quite different. Yeah, you know? absolutely. I've got- and I'm not the only one. If no. that's happened to me, God knows how many thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of kids have gone through the schooling system with that. Because, like, um, you know, it, neurodivergency, it, it, it's, it's spread far and wide now, the idea of it, you know. Mm. And I swear a lot of it, if, if it's not treated or understood, can be passed down generationally, either through learned behaviour or through epigenetics or, you know, however you want to look at that. Um, I swear it, it can be passed down generationally and it, you know if we don't understand it and we don't start treating it early then people's lives become messy your life became messy on substances mine became messy on substances for a want of trying to escape and normalise and deal with the behaviours mm. you know for me it was a case of god I've just got to get out of my head I can't stand it in here anymore you know it's it just getting exactly, out of yeah. my head for god's sake I felt very much like that. I really, really heavily resonated. And, like, two two major things kind of came up for me within that. Because mm. um, my schooling, my secondary school experience was was, was heavy because I, um, I started, like, that was the first time I, you know, severe anxiety and, mm. and areas of... I was, I was bullied, not as severely as others, but it was still, it was still harsh. But my school was, a, was an all-boys grammar, mm. and they had uh, combined military cadets as part of it so Whoa. once you got to GCSEs you could it was an engagement choice thing so it wasn't forced no but even so it was still quite uh, exactly but the the primary principle from as an adult looking at it from an educated perspective mm. was academia or military academia or military that is what you were there for no creation and no creation no exactly Jesus. and so we had um, our student support was a good example of this student services mm. I spent a lot of time there. <laughs> um, they uh, they were two male ex police officers. Oh, they weren't f- practitioners in anything within mental health. They were good cop and bad cop. Basically, they had mm. like they had like one guy had a softness to him, and he he like he'd hear you out and be like, "Come on, mate, you're being silly," kind of attitude, mm. which I'm like has been a, a masculine uh, degenerative like approach for mm. for years and years and years and years because it is just like. That's where all of that masking and the fragility of this comes in. It's just yeah, like, yeah. Um, I remember having a meltdown because um, I had I had self harm behaviors displaying when I was in school quite a mm. lot, mm. and I had a meltdown in in a class, and I was removed out, and I was put in a room on my own with a football, 
What? Like that was that was the practice. It was just like, yeah, just beat that up for a bit or whatever. And it was a bit like, how do you feel now? After I came out, I was like, well, more tired, but equally as stressed, um, <laughs> arguably. <laughs> and so I truanted. Like I just immediately, like as soon as I picked that process in of like, if I'm in crisis and I go to the one place where I need help, I and I'm not getting it. This is not for me. So I left school and started doing drugs. It was literally like GCSE level. So I got expelled in the year before my GCSE exams, but I was allowed to come back and sit them, but I was not given any work or sent anything. I was just like, yeah, you can come back and do the exams. We'd rather not have you here. Wow. I was like, great, this is what I wanted. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to be here. But I like properly plunged because I, you know, my hometown was a a real boxed in thing. There was real lack of youth engagement, lack of mental health practitioner going on. Maidstone in Kent. Okay, I made Maidstone. Um, and it was really like, there was, and there was a big drug culture there. So mm-hmm. lots of us young people and often uh, the young neurodivergent people who were experiencing mental health concerns. Funnily enough. Funnily enough. Funnily enough. Channeled into a little cluster of a yeah. family to support each other. We usually with find vulnerability. each other, don't we? That's the way. This is it. And it was a sad thing that it became wrapped in within, within substances because it was before my uh, actual GCCD exams that we had like our first fatality mm. among our like community. And it was mm. a real like, my world just got ripped apart. And then I sat my GCSE exams on drugs and like did them and was fine more or less because I like had the brain to like anything retentive mm. so like maths and history and other uh, and sciences I didn't do so good with but anything explorative English and mm. RS and stuff I was like smashing it because I was just like I know what I'm doing to spiel I don't know any of the information you didn't give it to me and I don't retain any of the bits that I left because I hated it here no, what's so it was, the chemical formula for ammonia? I don't fucking know, yeah. and I don't care. When have I ever had to work out the area of the inside of a triangle since I left school? I, I mean, I'm sure somebody who's an architect probably needs that, but you can learn Truth. that at architect school. When you, you know what I mean? actually designate passion, when you're like engagement choice, when you're like, I yeah. want to be an architect, I'm going to learn that, then it goes in. Yeah. But when you go, oh, so it's a shame that you can't remember these facts, isn't yeah. it? And it's yeah. like, no, it's not, man. Leave me alone. Um, it's but, crazy. When I went to go, when I went to college to go and learn um, music technology, I was all over it. Yeah, it was right. all over. I was there early for every class. Do you know what I mean? Taking notes, going home, doing research because I was passionate about it and I was into it and I loved it. You passion's know? the one. Yeah. If, if for, you want to engage an ADHD, yeah. For an ADHD, passion is the one. If you can engage with an ADHD person mm. over something they're passionate about, then you know, totally hold on, right. you're going on a ride together. You know. Um, I'm trying to think, like, because I had the, my second part of what conjured for me when you when you shared your story mm. uh, again was like uh, I think you're saying around that that this would happen less now, and I had a real heartbreak. I worked at a school um, in quite a poor area uh, nearby in Bristol, mm. Mm. and um, I was working as a one-to-one for an autistic boy in the in the school who needed additional support, and he had funding, and it was all great, and that was working really smoothly but then I, my radar was just pinging off because I was like the, I had to bring it to the teacher who the teacher was in her 60s had been working at that same school for 30 years mm. I've seen it before time and time again where they just don't care by that point they're like oh I've been doing this all my life like rolling into retirement yeah mm. r- for real and so I was like I feel like it might be worth flagging this young lady because I think you know she is 
more or less non-verbal all the time. She's really struggling. Dyslexia is clearly a massive thing going on for her. She needs additional support. And the, I will never forget it. I'll never forget it because I almost like stormed and cried. Um, was that she just went, oh, well, you know, her whole family's a bit dim and like, <sighs> and supermarkets need cashier workers. Shut and she the was, front door. She was 10. She said that. Yeah, she said that to me. As a practitioner, as a specialist coming in to work with this person, she just, just said it. And this girl was 10 years old. And I was like, so you, what, have you given up? Like, is this conversation where that dies? Because this is where... Uh, I'm actually going to have to shut my jaw. Yeah, I'm, it's Jesus unbelievable. Wept. What a... Yeah, I know. So many it was expletives that want to come out of my mouth right now. Yeah, thank um, you. <laughs> no, it broke my heart, man. Like it was a real like. I stopped. It was honestly, to be honest, I think it was actually. I actually think it was the last contract I ever did working in schools, uh, in that capacity, and not because I was like, right, this is pointless. I can't do it. Mm. But it was just heartbreaking to go through this sight and this seeing again and again and again. I was like, all right. I can they say working therapeutically with young young people anyway, um, up sort of more than three years, you're, you're heading for a burnout. Yeah, you know, they say the turnaround is... They yeah. say three years and, and have a break and go That's work it. with adults for a bit and then come back if you want to. But, you know, it's well known within the therapy community that two, three years, that, that's yeah. pretty much tops. I did uh, in and out like seven, eight years. Mm. So it was like, yeah, from when I was 18, mm. it was like, yeah, my life was working in it's support hard. and care and all these things. It's hard and it's heartbreaking, like you said, watching a young person go through it and, and trying to offer support and fighting against the system. And, you know, I've sat in child protection meetings and you know, all mm. sorts of stuff over the years and it just kills me. Yeah, you know, kills it is. Me. It, it takes a real particular kind of resilience. Mm. And, and I must say, like, within capacity of those placements and roles mm. some of the most inspirational people I've ever met in my life <laughs> yeah. I've come across where they're just yeah. like they have dealt with not only like you know whatever tragedies have befallen them in their life but they are constantly battling with the ones that are befalling these young people in their in their care and service and they're doing it with such love and empathy mm. in a professional manner is like it's beyond me like how people can dedicate so much of their life and their mind and their heart to to doing these things and it's really really inspired me because mm. it's very much like I want to I want to do a journey that's my own while simultaneously seeing if the umbrella can get larger because it is exactly like you say like that ability to go you can do things almost um unintentionally that can make bigger impacts than than practice like when you when you know you can train and work in these areas and like some of the when I was working in one of the schools I was a key worker for this one guy for five years and I thought I was just cannon fodder because it was we had a hard time like mm. I, I, I really enjoyed working with him and I got to know him really well and then in the fifth year they removed me to put me with somebody else who was new and more challenging and then obviously my key student well not obviously but they fell apart stopped coming in all this I didn't realize my impact that was a good like, moment of that and then it was like, again, I did all of these years of doing all these placements and practices. And again, I still hold the candle to the biggest proud moment was working with this boy completely separately. And all I was doing was praising him and basically just being like, you're awesome. This is wicked. Like, let's have more fun with this. Like, let's explore this silly thing. Mm -hmm. Like that was a huge, much bigger impact than years of like traumatic training and, and all these different areas. With it. Mm -hmm. it was really like 
wow, okay. So if I can frame frame my life in a way that's like the most positive aspect for me, then I can be more positive and do more mm. do more impact. Mm. So yeah. Mm. It's gotta be tough for any kids growing up in society these days anyway, mm. compared to certainly when I was a kid. Um, never mind growing up and, and having some kind of neurodivergent problem to deal with. You know, that must yeah. be awful in, in modern society. I, it's, it's hard to tell, isn't it? Because I, I speak to my folks about this because my, both my siblings have children. Okay. And I think they have a lot of co- primary concern around the tech and the social media mm. and the, uh, the mm. other, the newer aspects of shame God, yeah. and societal complications and stuff. And I'm like, trying not try my best I mean it's very me trying not to be damning about any of it anyway because mm. I'm like there is advances in these things which are remarkable but I have heard more really young people very accurately describe their own mental health or be able to understand that they need help with regulation it's true and there's stuff. more emotional intelligence around I, I yeah. would say yeah. yeah and I think like you said before wisely that these things are generational and they mm. are passed down mm. and we have had ADHD parents generationally for years and years and years and years Mm. and there was a lot of coping and a lot of strategy that is now like really immersed into that Mm. and you know parents worry around the idea of like oh but I don't want to like give them a phone to stick their heads in for x amount of time and stuff and I was like we're we're all doing it that's not like this new generation thing as soon as it was brought into us we've all had our heads in either news or tech or whatever else it was Mm. And we're all being like bombarded with all these different pieces of information. Thankfully, so much of the content out there is now accurate sources of information for neurodivergence and mental health and things. Obviously, there's a swarm of none and there's a swarm of really damaging content. But that's kind of always been it. Like if we before we only ever relied on uh, scientific papers published X, Y and Z time ago and government advice mm. as your only sources of mental health education. That's true, yeah. Um, yeah, I, and I, I personally think, like, I'm trying to see it as the mm. most positive mm. aspect. That was a real, like, I'm going to try my best to be a lighthouse for my siblings because yeah. they were really, like, worried and concerned about that. So it was a bit like, no, there's, there's some beauty in this. And I guess, like, again, there's, like, a, a level of training in that because when you remove people's choices, like... Mm they they will rebel it's not a case of oh, going yeah. all right we'll stop them having this and doing this because like that's well, just always just what's been the case gonna conform or, yeah 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 you know. totally and conformity is not something that we are strong as human beings i think like conformity it takes breaking. Is not something easy for someone who's neurodivergent either it, yeah you know? much more so yeah. much more so mm. um like have you like you probably would have come across the two terms but uh odd and then pda um so we, we, we came across a lot of these uh, uh, in education. but So ODD was Oppositional Defiance Disorder. Okay. It's labeled as a disorder. To me, it's the punkest thing I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. It's like, what, you don't like authority? Yeah. Yeah, of course. We, I didn't like, even totally know that was that. a label. Yeah. It's a label. Okay. Yeah, it's a label. And it's, and it's again, it's a diagnosis in a sense. It's a, it's a layer of going, all right, well, you know, teachers telling you what to do doesn't work. Yeah, go figure. This is a really common thing. And then PDA is pathological demand avoidance, which is something I really, really resonate, which I didn't realize. So the pathological naturally is perceived demand. It's not even just about do this. It's like the level of expectation around being expected to do something. Mm. And there's parts of my mind which is going, no, 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 please. 
and it's really weird for me because I implement an art form which requires people to tell me what to do but I structure it in a way that is my engagement choice always because I've had it on live streams where people have come in within five minutes and gone do this and I've just been like and then just carried on just doing what I was doing (laughs) and like my friends laughing because they all know me really well and I'm just like there's due process and channels that I've created to enable my brain to process these demands and so like all of these are like furthering, 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 furthering all these ways of like, it can overcomplicate it, but it can also like really help to understand how you could get through to somebody. Because when you're like, okay, this person doesn't like opposition, so me forcing them to do something isn't ever, ever, ever going to work. If anything, it's going to riff and it's going to cause like damage. This makes me dig my heels in further. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It really yeah. does. I'm just this like, right, it. I ain't budging now then. This is it. You know, and the stubborn side comes out and it's like, you won't force me to do anything I do not want to do. This is it. Won't, you know? And, and, and this is where it transitions into like positive behavioral support because mm. it's like, okay, they really struggle with this. How do we, as an environment, as a practice, reframe it so that they can cope, not like forcing them to cope? Mm. And I was like, oh, so I have a lot of optimism, I think. I'm like one of few people, I think, because mm. I do think there's a lot of people which are like, oh my God, the world is just crazy now and it's like too yeah. much and there's too much like bad shit going on within it and too much misinformation and conspiracy. And I'm like, yeah, there's a lot more, obviously, but there's also like better understanding, more things being talked about, more like engagement practices. Mm. Mm. Um, and the therapy start, side of things, like, it's pretty remarkable like mm. how much people are like neut- uh, normalizing therapy and normalizing that it's like you don't need to be um like chronically depressed in the very screen like way to need therapy like that's beautiful like that's an amazing thing mm. to untangle the ball of wool in your mind mm. is like Absolutely. amazing for anyone yeah, I think, you know, it can be useful if you've got unhelpful thoughts or you've got some kind of behavior you want to deal with. You know, it's not just someone you go and see if somebody's died or you're yeah. having a breakdown or, you know, you think you might have some sort of condition. Or, mm. You know, counseling, counseling can just be... I've got clients who sometimes just come in and, and just talk for an hour because it's the only place they can come and be listened to. You know yeah. what I mean? And that's their hour. And they come out at the end of the therapy and, and they think, man, I really haven't done much in this session. But for them, like they come back the next week and go, oh my God, I'm really so so grateful for you letting me spill my guts last week. It was the first time I've really been able to let go of that to anybody in full oh. detail. And you're just like, oh, now I see the weight of it. You know, I had a long conversation with supervisors about this over the years. And mm. like, sometimes you think you're not effective as a therapist, but actually just by providing the space for someone to come and be themselves, that's the only time in their life they get that. Yeah. You know, it's the only time in their life they can be them for just an hour in their week. It's like, yeah, okay, now I understand the gravity of that. Now I understand the, like how helpful that really is. You mm, know? Totally. Mm, it uh, is insane. It's, yeah, it's totally crazy. And mm. and to see that impact when, I, like, um, I was talking to my friend around this when I came out of some bereavement therapy, which was really like the princ- biggest principles is like, is being seen, being heard in the space that you're in because mm. you're choosing to be in that room to talk about you. You don't have to sugarcoat that level of like, you know, people do a lot of unburdening when they're like, oh, I, I've got friends that I can talk to. Yeah, but I don't yeah. want to like ruin their lives it's not the by same telling as a them. It's stranger though, is it? A stranger is somehow easier to go and spill your guts so in a lot easier, of ways. So much easier, especially yeah. if that, 
process is just to be listened to because it's mm. so much because you end up answering or you want to unpack unraveling. shame if you want to unpack shame yeah strangers are the best yeah absolutely right. amazing you know right. i hate to think how much shame i've unpacked in the chill out room of a nightclub or <laughs> my tits so on ecstasy true. do you know what i mean so true. the amount of self-therapy i've done in chill out rooms and in, in nightclubs over the years like when i was <laughs> so younger true. it's like it's, in, it's amazing when i found out that mdma was being used now as a therapeutic drug i was like oh my god no, that makes sense to me. Oh my word, it makes sense. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm for that as well. With, with like doing that stuff safely and like having regulation. I think with psychedelic it. therapy is a really, absolutely growing and and amazing sect of thera- section of therapy. 100%. And I want to. If you know anybody who's doing psychedelic therapy, or if you're watching this and you know anybody, please put in touch with me because I would love to get a psychedelic therapist on here for a chat. I know one. Yes. Ooh. Yes. I, awesome. I will one thousand percent connect you because I yes, think please. they are yes, they are an incredible inspiration to me. Mm. Um, quite a new person in my life, anyway. But uh, but yeah, yeah, and, I, and I really do believe great. in it. Like I'm, I'm quite, I'm very passionate about the the kind of mm. very gentle psilocybin introduction, mm. Mm. and it's like the only thing from substances that has like stuck around for me is like micro dosing with psilocybin, and I just think it's been an amazing tool to being like, I've just sat with myself and connected with parts or connected with self regulation mm. stuff in, in so many beautiful ways that I'm really like really grateful really. Cause mm. it's like, Oh, I loved the, the fun and explorative and mad going out to parties kind of side of it. Mm. But there's another side of this here, which is really just oh, giving me the space just, to calibrate. Yeah. We just need to get away from this idea that drugs are bad. Mm. You know, yeah, so yeah, yeah. They're not, bad, we they're need to get it. away from that shit because it's so not real. And these people making up the rules about drugs, go and take a dose of mushrooms and then come back and have a conversation yeah. with us about mushrooms and no, no use. Yeah, you know, honestly, like I, I honestly think that our world leaders should take doses of mushrooms. It should be honestly, I, I genuinely I'd laugh about it, but I think it's a bloody good idea because you know, talk about getting to know yourself. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, if, yeah. If you've got any, if there's stuff stuck in your mind, and you know, that'll come out. Oh, for real, it'll come out, and you will be forced to look at it and process it, and yeah, you know all the rest totally. of it. Totally, and that really, really useful. And I think the probably the biggest problem in drugs we, with drugs we've got in our society is that they are misunderstood. I hundred percent agree. You know? And I'm not being an advocate for sticking a needle in your arm and jacking up on heroin or you know anything like that. And there are some really harmful drugs out there. But in particular, what I'm talking about is plant medicine. Yes. Plant medicine right. needs to be more researched, more understood, and used therapeutically. Yeah. You know, I mean, with the results from the MDMA trials that I was reading about um, a few weeks ago that happened. Um, was it? something like eight sessions of MDMA assisted psychotherapy was having the same effect on patients as 40 sessions 40 sessions of unassisted yeah like okay and I put that into the figures of we haven't got enough therapists to deal with the amount of people who want therapy yeah you know you could seriously you could see five times more patients in the same space of time just through doing MDMA assisted psychotherapy. That's an incredible. And that is wild. Incredible change. You know, if you can have somebody coming back from war, who and I take my hat off to anybody who goes and fights in a war. I really do. So I couldn't do it. I couldn't, no. I couldn't do it. I take my hat off to anybody who's willing to give their life for their country in that way. They come back from war seeing some horrific things, terrible, terrible things. Um, I'm sure you can imagine. We don't need to go into detail on that, but 
they can come back and have eight sessions of MDMA assisted psychotherapy for PTSD and be cured and go back into society and live out the rest of their life in mm. happy harmony. Yeah. You know, whereas what happens now, they come back from war, they have to wait years for a pension, might get a job somewhere if they can manage to hold one down with the mental health issues they've got, suffering from PTSD. I mean, my God, mm. awful. And we just throw them by the wayside and, you know, leave them to go on with their lives. There's very little sort of therapeutic help given to people coming back from war from that servicemen I think it's disgusting yeah absolutely disgusting I think the way we approach severe trauma is well societally medically is fundamentally flawed Mm. it really is Mm. because it's like trauma particularly is one of those things where it's like I have an impacted event. I am not able to wait 12 weeks Mm. for a session. I need to go to a doctor. I need Mm. immediately support. Mm. And the fastest way to turn that around is Mm. like medicational SSRI or something. It's basically just like start taking this, come back if you're cured or whatever else. And again, it's like this is a challenging thing in the substance world because it's like we stigmatize individuals who are addicts um, mm. and, and use in society while we foster and create addicts as a I medical agree. purpose. And like that's, that's broken, that's, that's really flawed. And, and there was a really amazing trial. It's okay I to say, be an addict if it's a pharmaceutical drug, right? Yeah, right. Right. I mean, it's that's so socially acceptable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it's alcohol. Um, alcohol addiction is arguably one of the most damaging as God, well. Yeah. And and like physically this is, and mentally. Yeah. You know, this rot your body huge, and your mind. Yeah. A huge example of stigma divide of where you go. Okay, well, you know, part of the reason that heroin kills so many people is the impurity, mm. um, and so and the loneliness and stigma. Yeah, mm. killed two of my friends too. Mm. I really see you on that. Mm. It's really mm. heartbreaking because I had a lot of guilt around the way I stigmatize those people because I was doing substances anyway as well. Mm-hmm. But that was a line we didn't want to cross kind of thing. Yeah, and loneliness basically killed them for the most part because it was like they were shunned by all of us and their family and society and they were just deemed as like scum for, for the for the addiction that was chosen. Mm. And if it was clean, like, uh, is it Switzerland? Uh, where they have they have facilities recovery testing facilities, facilities yeah well. testing yeah. facilities as well mm-hmm. but places where it will be tested cleaned and administered safely so the STI rate went down predominantly mm-hmm. and then the the accidental death by overdose rate went like down by like a hundred something wow. like like literally like a hundred percent or something mm-hmm. crazy it mm-hmm. was just like the amount of people going through recovery process that would go through that massive. And then there was a huge, huge, huge thing about people going and doing shamanic um, ceremonies with Arboga oh, around yeah, yeah, unpicking yeah. The, the fabric of the chemical reaction that is addicted to opiates. Yeah. Because what we do with opiates is we, we substitute with another opiate to lighten the load. So it's like you go on to um, methadone or you go on to, you know, I don't really remember all these anymore. No, I don't either. Um, you go onto these processes. They and basically step you down. Yeah, you? exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're expected to to withhold that. So mm. there's no. It's not dealing with the trauma that's driving that. This is exactly you know, it's not right. It's dealing with. It's, it's, it's the same idea of giving somebody SSRIs. You know, yeah. you're not dealing with the root cause of anxiety. You're just giving them a blanket to numb everything that they feel. It's not feel dealing exactly with the, the root way. cause of anything at all. Exactly know, and this way. is why I think things like Ibogaine, uh, you know, brilliant, brilliant results at all kinds of addiction. And there's been, I think there's now Ibogaine centers uh, open in America in places where people can go and actually have these treatments. Mm. Um, and ayahuasca is, is getting, you know, 
grown in popularity as well. Um, mm. You know, for people who are willing, wish, wishing to heal from trauma, yeah. it's proven very effective for people who are having traumatic experiences and they go away and have this week-long ayahuasca experience where they do it like three or four sessions with a, a shaman guided and and then they come out of that and talk about it when they're back in consciousness again and mm -hmm. process it and then go back in for another dive and come back out. And after a week, they come back like trauma-free pretty much, mm. haven't healed. It's you know. a remarkable thing, and mm. like I, I've seen, I've seen damage in that too. Because, again, um, yeah, my friend who you know explored around the psychedelic therapy routes and stuff, mm. there was a lot of uh, issue with um, almost like a gentrification of mm. these processes because the practice got really popular. So mm. ayahuasca is a really mm. good example. Mm. There was little retreats popping up everywhere, yeah, yeah, where there was non-trained, yeah, non, not even like trained, but you know, not people who were doing it for the wrong reasons. They were accepting hordes of money to then administer ayahuasca and then not have the, the appropriate environment to do all these things. Anyway, people were coming out with more trauma. Mm. But um, but in terms of like the, the turnaround and the experiences that people can have, like one, one of the things that I principally have been like saying quite a lot of is I think obviously trauma in itself is one of the biggest things that changes us in in a very very quick space of time so we can undergo an incredibly hard harmful experience and it will change us forever mm. now we can also have an incredibly positive experience which can change it forever it's mm. like a reverse mm. trauma mechanism thing and i think that in the psychedelic uh and the, and those kind of substance based things can work incredibly well because it's yeah. like yeah. when you feel like particularly in suicidal tendency when you feel like there's no other point and there's no other reason and you haven't got community and you haven't got a job and you haven't got money, you know, sanctuary, all these kind of elements to it. Substances give you almost all of those things sometimes mm. in that mm. one space of time when you're like, oh, I feel something. And I'm like, and I'm suddenly like, oh, I just really temporarily, whatever, I just feel warm to the world again. And if that practice can be done authentically, wonderfully with with people who know the practice, who know how to engage with that stuff safely, mm. and then with the therapeutic input following that to being like, well, why do we, you know, feel within these moments of elation that these things are okay? Because w these are chemical processes which we can all achieve mm. without, but they take years and years and years and years of practice. Exactly mm. like you're saying, like, mm. it's like the heightened states of consciousness argument is like around, you know, meditation for 40 years or hit DMT once. Mm. And it's like, it's not that easy for no. real, but with 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 ap applying both practices simultaneously over a amount of time, you can do incredible things. Mm. And mm. like those studies you were looking at, like they are like remarkable for for positive feedback around yeah. this. And they've done so much to unpick the bullshit that has been surrounding most of these. MDMA is a great example of this, where it's in its cl clean format. If you are making sure that you don't do it more than once within like two weeks or so, it's almost like it's safer than most of anything that we consume. It's safer than sugar, it's safer than like high cholesterol fats, all these kind of areas where you're like, no, this is a practice that could be implemented on a regular basis, which could change your life for the better. You could have a warm, gorgeous, positive experience where you feel a, a real natural source of elation from serotonin flooding your brain. And then you're like, oh, damn, okay cool like this this is a way i can reconnect with my reality and my world and when you're able to engage with those experiences with a therapist and be like yeah i what was the what was the best bits about taking those 
substances is like, oh, I had really amazing chats with my friends mm. and I felt really connected to them and I felt really loved up. And it's like, oh, these are all personal tr attributes of, of society that we can do, we can achieve. And like, it's something that I... You can achieve that without drugs. But exactly. You've got, to, you've got to go through that process to realise what it is that you were really missing in your life that you've got to, mm. you've got to somehow kind of try and attain naturally. Exactly right. Um, yeah, yeah. No, that's a great. It's a great pathway out of working with addiction is to work in that kind of way. Yeah, you know, totally. How, how can you put positive things in your life to replace what you've been trying to numb for a long time? Mm. You know? Yeah, mm. massively. Mm. Like it's, you, you can, you can't, you escape past the threshold forever. Like if that's the only intention behind mm. doing it, and I think that was what kind of happened with me, mm. where I was into psychedelics. And then I had a really traumatic experience, many traumatic experiences, to be fair, mm. and was really scared for my mental health. Psychologically, I felt really unhinged. I was kind of having what I would describe as a bit of a psychotic break mm. and then was then moving into more control. So it was like like stimulants, ketamine mm. and benzodiazepines. And it was like I knew what they were going to do each time. So I could hole up at my friend's flat and just be like, bam, we just get on it for six days straight and then die out for one day. And that was us and that was fine. And that was the biggest escape because I, I was not living life in any way, way, shape or form. I was content enough because it was only when we had some, I, I went to, um, it was it was the moment, like it was a recovery moment basically to me. But I went to my friend's funeral who died from substances and my friends were taking drugs there at the funeral. So like that was a moment where I hit it like, and it just opened like barn doors just got bust open in my brain where I was like rah okay no no like absolutely no more so I, I went I, I then had to just experience all my trauma and all the things that were being suppressed and all the things that were d disengaged from me for a long long time of not being able to access anything I loved or or hang out with my friends because it was too triggering and too difficult and stuff so yeah it's a real it's a real game changer because it's like I hate and I love them <laughs> Like, I, I learned a word which best describes them, um, and it's I'm, I have to drop it just because I love the word. Go for it, go for it. Uh, it's agathocacological, uh, which means to be composed of both good and evil. So it's basically. Well, I think you just hit the human condition on the head with the nail, yeah. mate. I think that is that is what it is to be human. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Full stop. It totally <laughs> is. And and I think that's been a beautiful part of the mm. last few years is mm. seeing life that way because it's like, you know, the disdain and despair and all the levels of like unfair or what ifs and, mm. and aspects of it were just so controlling and so difficult. And there's so much in my life which is like I'm not. I'm not like toxically positive. Like I'm not in the point where I'm like, oh mate, it's gonna be fine, don't worry. It's like, no, I, I, I see you, like this is shit right now. This is really shit. And what you're going through is, is awful, but, and I'm not gonna promise you that things are gonna be fine, but it's also like giving that window. And every time like those conversations come up, I get them delivered to me when I'm in crisis and stuff. And the nature of mental health awareness and conversation among my community my friends mm. is amazing and beautiful and i had this yeah. at boomtown we were doing check-ins regularly and Lush. some of us were struggling and it was just Lush. like yeah, yeah, we yeah. were imposing therapeutic practice yeah. in 
like a culture which There's is nothing normally like somebody who understands kind of going like that and, and reaching down are you feeling down let me pick you up yeah, you know yeah. I mean? there's nothing Massively like that when that. somebody understands and you you know that person understands you and they spot it and they go come on come with me yeah totally yeah, love that it's it's that. yeah it's life-changing i really had this mm. i had this mm. i had um let's yeah i had one pinnacle moment of this just like still within this topic was that as uh one of the festivals this year and uh, basically, I went to see an artist that my friend Josh had shown me, mm. and uh, and so it was emotionally charged. I was like, "Yeah, this is going to be powerful. It's going to be a bit of a moving thing." And I hit the dance floor and I cried within the second song because it was just like immediately they were playing some of the iconic moments, and I was like, "Okay, just going to let go." And this total stranger just had like he was really like he could see he was going through and he was just like he didn't say anything didn't do anything but he just had this like presence where I was like I was in a crowd with hundreds hundreds of people and I was just like I could feel him there and he kind of put his hand on my shoulder and was like I know it must be really really hard but like well done and I was like you don't know what it is but <laughs> it doesn't need you to nailed it <laughs> you absolutely nailed it because I was just oh. like yeah this is beautiful grief this is not this is not hard for me right now. This is not painful right now. This is beautiful. This is like, I'm having nostalgia and a reconnecting to a memory which is cherished, mm. um, which I, I, you know, I can't replicate that experience, but I can replicate the memory through this experience. Mm. And like that mm. was huge for me. It's weird. Like I, I think bereavement can go into that place of, of kind of like beautiful grief, like you said, yeah. you know. I had a moment when uh, I lost my mum at 36. Oh, no. Um, that's 10 years ago now. That was weirdly when I started to retrain as a counsellor as well. Funny that. Um, but yeah, <clears throat> I had a moment where, where I was really missing her and it, and it was a couple of years after. It was like, oh, I really wish... I, and one of those things was like, oh, I just don't know this thing about this thing. I'll ask mum. Oh, fuck, she's not here anymore. Mm. And then I went, oh, but she is. She's in here. And I know her so well that I know what her response to anything would be. Mm. You know? So she's like, oh, I'm just going to ask her in my head. She's still here. But for me, that was a little beautiful moment of grief where I realized I hadn't completely lost her. Mm. Do you know what I mean? She still lives on that. in memory and, 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 and kind of in my brain. And yeah, I, I think you're right. Those little beautiful moments of grief are, are just so so poignant and unchanging of everything that goes on in terms of the bereavement process yeah you know definitely mm. the the <laughs> again mutual friend dave will love me for saying this but um we should say thank you for dave for hooking us up because yeah. thank you for introducing us dave that's appreciate dave's going to come on in september i think he's he's heading down this way i think again i think so thanks for work um which was from wandavision the the marvel tv show yeah uh, which was like, what is grief if not love persisting? And I was like, every time, like, because Dave, like, Dave watched it and then quoted it and was like, I can't That's take credit. gorgeous. Because it was written in some, you know, nerdy fiction. And I was like, that is it. And I love that. Yeah, I love Like, that. the grief is not my pain persisting. It's a, it's a longing of love. It's a, it's a, it's a missing. And yeah, it's like, yeah, it is. Grief taught me how to deal with endings because I couldn't as a child I didn't understand and process when things would end and mm. break mm. for example and when I first ever my first ever relationship romantic relationship when that ended I didn't know how to process that it was all flooded rejection it was all these different things but mm. within bereavement it was a real like 
I, yeah, I'm still connected. I'm still loving those things. And if I have to love a memory or a person, they're both just as great to me. Like, that's wonderful. Mm. And um, To have had that experience of someone. Yeah, exactly yeah, that. Yeah. To, to have shared time. Yeah, mm. everything is impermanent in a sense. Mm. Like, you know, all mm. of this... I'm not, I don't really believe life is short. Like, I think life's amazingly complex and long. Um, but, like, all of these experiences and moments and stuff can be, can be really fleeting. So, like, we can have many, many, many of them and they can teach us so many things. And I've done a lot of, like, pride moments the last two years, particularly going to festivals where I would, you typically would have struggled to be in the substance environment and all these different things, smashing it with performances and putting an ode to individuals within sets mm. or like mm. coming out of it and writing a thing and burning it and being like basically I know all of you would be proud and it's like I'm embodying that because I'm proud my pain doesn't drown me my pain doesn't hold me to the floor mm. it gave me a catalyst to go okay I want to you know um, regulate the issues within my life I want to channel work into regulation and mm. and keeping myself alive keeping myself wanting to be alive should i say mm. Mm. um and then and then just propelling myself through this stuff and it's just been it's been huge man like because it mm. is real like i am doing it for me but i'm doing it for all the memories of these things yeah, as well absolutely and i think it really has empowered it tenfold um mm. i did one this year because my my friend uh i'll say unalived herself um in december last year and um they were a bit of a pioneer musically and they made huge influences on a lot a lot of people and so it's been a really interesting practice where i've done a few times in sets where i've kind of gone um yeah i'm gonna like i'm gonna bring the tone into a different place for this one uh i just want to make a bit of a piece uh as a as an ode to this person um but it's not a gushy slow thing because they were a breaks like producer nice, so it nice. was like right i'm gonna make some hardcore ravey breaks so if i didn't even put that note in there it wouldn't have mattered like if i just started <laughs> making dance music people would have danced and it would have been great and i would have had my gushiness but in the moments of that it was real like oh i'm gonna channel the hell out of this mm. person because they would just be like let's go kind of thing and nice. i was like yeah this is important this is special like this conduit thing mm. you know mm. Mm. seeking Absolutely. inspiration from love and pain i guess yeah i think that's art isn't it yeah that's art yeah. Listen, mate. We've been going for nearly two hours. Yeah. This I mean, is how what easily happens. we've been riding, riding <laughs> around the houses and all over the place, and we've weaved our way in and out of trauma and music and creativity and all sorts of different stuff, which has been incredible. And I've enjoyed the hell out of this conversation. I Me really too, have. It's been amazing. Um, listen, mate. You you uh, you beatboxed us in, so beatbox us out, my friend. It's time say. to say goodbye to everybody and uh, and wrap this one up before we run out of camera yeah. space. <laughs> Human being mental. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet. Thanks, I'll catch man. you soon, buddy. Thank yeah, you so thank much. Thank you so much.